Father God, you are holy. There is none like you. You are the great I am. You are our Savior King. And as we pause for a moment this morning, we make this holy confession that has been made before us today. Jesus is Lord. May that truth resonate so deeply in us that it affects every aspect of who we are, all that we do, every relationship defined by that truth. And Lord, as we speak of heaven this morning, may you ignite within us a passionate desire for more of you. Less of me, less of this world, more of you. In Jesus' name. We're going to talk about heaven this morning. Unfortunately, we don't spend enough time in the American church today talking about heaven. There are less sermons preached on heaven in the American church today than there ever have been in the last 2,000 years of Christian history. Some preachers like to talk a lot about hell. Some preachers like to talk a lot about how to live a good life. Some preachers like to give a lot of moral lessons. And I've fallen into every one of those categories. And this week I've just been stricken by the fact that we've been called to be a people who are heaven-bound, heaven-minded. I use a lot of old phrases in my preaching, and most of the time the old phrases have some really great truths, but there's one old phrase that I think is one of the biggest lies in the face of this earth. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, that person is so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good? Anybody ever heard that one? That is the biggest lie you will ever hear, because it's impossible. The reason that many of us are of no earthly good is because we're not heavenly minded. We're of no earthly good because everything that we think about is right in front of us. My one prayer for you today, as we've gathered together as the body of Christ, one prayer for each of us and as a congregation today is this, that we would want more of the awesome God who has revealed himself to us. Because you see, that's what it means to want heaven. To want heaven is to want God. 
To want heaven is, is not, if you think about heaven and you think, well, that's when I'll get to go and be with my loved ones, and that's your focus of heaven, you're missing the greater picture, and I don't want you to miss it this morning. If you're, if you're looking at heaven and you're just seeing, well, that'll be the time when I'll get to escape from all this mess that my life is. If you're seeing heaven as just an escape hatch from a sin-soaked world, you're missing the real truth of heaven. If you're wanting heaven just because you look at what you have now and you think, well, I'd like to have something better, if you're just seeing heaven as something better than what you have now, you're missing the point. To want heaven is to want God. And let me tell you this morning, and I don't want to offend you any more than is necessary, but I want to tell you this. If you don't want God... You don't want heaven. I hope you'll see that as we walk through the scriptures this morning. I want to give you an illustration that's going to kind of guide us through our time today. I don't think much of TV shows 99% of the time, and I really don't really think much of this one, but it just came to mind as I was studying this passage when you read through Revelation 21, if I were to sum up Revelation 21, one word, just give you one word about what this passage is about, the word would be new. You see this word used a number of times, at least half a dozen times in the first few verses. He sees us, I see a new heaven and a new earth. Old heaven and old earth have passed away. I see a new city, Jerusalem, God saying to the people, and I behold, I am making all things new. You think about that word newness, and if you look at the original Greek language in which the New Testament was written, the Greek language has a variety of words for the idea of new. One of the Greek words means new in terms of chronology, in terms of time. It's like, okay, I've got something old, and then through the course of time, I come into something new. But the idea of that word is that which I have now is very much like what I had before. It's just new. It'd be like me going to Kohl's and I get a new shirt. Well, I've had shirts before. This just happens to be a new shirt, not this one I'm wearing. But if I went to Kohl's and got one, a new shirt, okay? That's, that's the idea of that word. It's new to me, new in time. But that's not the word here. For many of us, when we think of heaven, we think of the newness of heaven, we think, well, it's going to be a lot like what I have now, just new. Just better, just kind of the earth on steroids, kind of hyped up, all our senses will be high and all that. If that's your vision of heaven, let me tell you, it's something so much better than that. You are settling in your mind for something so much less than what God has for you because this word says it all. It's the Greek word kainos. I'm not expecting you to remember that word, but I do want you to remember what it means. It means new in character, new in essence, and new in fundamental identity. It's the word used in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when it says, all who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that newness is what John is depicting here. 
So heaven is not just earth on steroids. It's not just amped up experience of what we already have now. It's just not like take what you got now and then pump it up a few notches. That's not the picture that John is giving. It's wholly other. It's completely different to the point where when John was given a glimpse of it, you can watch as he's walking through this scripture, he is struggling to find the words to describe what he sees. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, these are merely symbolic attempts to express the inexpressible. Have you ever for a moment found yourself without words? Some of you wish you'd find a preacher without words, but have you ever found yourself in that moment without words to describe what you're seeing? Maybe it was a sunset, sunrise, something of God's creation. You're just in awe of that moment. That's where John found himself, and he's trying to describe for you the indescribable. So I want to give you this illustration today. It comes from a TV show. Many of you may, may watch. How many of you watch uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition or have watched that show in the past? Okay, I've never really been too struck by the show. Actually, the host of the show kind of irks me a little bit with his personality. But, but there's something in this show that I want you to see. And I want to encourage you for a moment this morning to use your God-given imagination for more than the ho-hum stuff that we generally use it for. This is, I want you to go beyond a daydream here for a moment. I want to show you a clip from this show. This is the same thing that happens on this show every week. If you don't know about the show, basically they'll come to a family that's in desperate need. Perhaps one of the parents has gotten cancer or they're completely impoverished. A variety of things, a variety of scenarios and situations. And, and they'll come to this family and say, we want to give you a new home. And usually their home is a wreck. This particular family, their home was completely unfinished. The floors were still plywood. The, the windows weren't sealed. So in the winter, their home got really cold. And just all kind of, you look at their home, it was just, you could just tell it was completely unfinished. It was a wreck. I'm not going to show you that particular scene. But they come to these families and they say, we want to give you a new home. It's not going to cost you anything. We do, we're going to send you away. In fact, we're going to send you away on a vacation. We're going to send you to Disney World. We're going to send you to the Virgin Islands. We're going to send you somewhere great, and we're going to spend the next week or two weeks, however long it takes them to do this, we're going to rebuild your home, and it's going to be perfectly new. And I want you to see the response this morning. And as you watch this clip, as you watch this clip, here's my challenge. Would you watch this and in your mind be thinking, what might heaven be like? Check this out. the limo. I was like, whoa, everybody in El Paso was there. We were just so grateful that the El Paso community did this, especially with the economy right now. My parents don't consider themselves heroes, but I think they are heroes. They're my heroes. To someone who doesn't really have that much themselves, you give and give and give. <laughs> and like, that takes a lot of sacrifice from every one of you guys. And this week, it's been about your community giving back to you. 
So what do you say? You want to see what's behind this bus? Yeah! Say, say it with me. Here we go. Bus drivers, move When the bus moved and I saw our house, it was the turning point of the new beginning. My old home was holding me back from doing a lot of things. My husband and I built the home, but our focus changed so we could help the children that were in need, and that's why we stopped with the construction of our home. And now we have a finished home. We will be able to help a lot more people. It's a big blessing to us. It's a big blessing to You know, in watching that show, and every episode is similar, similar format and theme and all, I have never once seen any of the families that are standing behind that bus become captivated by the bus. I've never seen any of them go, wow, that is a really nice bus. In fact, you see the camera angles, you barely even see the bus. You catch a tire here, you get the idea that it's a bus, but they're not focused on the bus. I've never seen any of them go, man, that bus is so nice. I think instead of this whole other deal, let's just get on the bus and let's just go ride around town. Look at the tires on that thing. Those are some sweet decals on the bus. They don't, do they? No one ever pays any attention to the bus other than to say this. What's the word? Move that bus. You're going, where's he going with this? Folks, our problem is this. We're captivated by the bus. The God of the universe has created for us a home. When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that you might come and be with me where I am, his point was this. Let the cry of your life be, move that bus. Because these families, they know behind the bus is where it's really at, right? It's what's behind the bus of this world that's where it's really at. Are you hearing me, church? And I don't know what all the bus represents for you today, but anything that stands between you and your heavenly home is that bus. And we're captivated by the things of this world. We're captivated by our jobs. And, and we're captivated by our homes. And we're captivated by, by making the money and doing the things and, and having the good life. 
And we've even got preachers out there right now that are saying that the message of the church is you can have your best life now. And and I would say to you, no, you're never going to have your best life now because your best life is yet to come. That's why you should be living for him now. As long as your motivation is the here and now, you're living for the bus. But if you'd allow the Lord to give you a glimpse of what's behind the bus. You catch it every once in a while. Maybe it's in that sunset or that sunrise. My wife and I sat up the other night just looking up at the stars at a home that God has blessed us with, just in awe of the glory of God. Such a wonderful and peaceful night, but it's just a glimpse. It's a glimmer of the coming reality. Sometimes it even happens in church. I think we saw a glimpse of it in our young people this week who've, who've gone to, to camp, which I will tell you, the first thing one of them asked me when they came back was, did you miss going to camp this year? And I kind of cut up with them. We laughed a little bit. But in my heart, I was going, yeah, because there's a glimpse of heaven there. And see, we, I can remember years we'd go to camp, and 12 years as a youth pastor, we'd go to camp, and then at the end of camp, you feel like as a youth pastor, you need to give them, okay, you're getting ready to go back to the real world speech. And I've repented from that this week. Because I've come to understand what I want every person in this room to understand, that the world we are living in now is the fake. It is the lie. What you are made for is far beyond anything that you will experience here. But you get a glimpse every once in a while. You get a camp experience. You get a mountaintop experience. And, and when we get to those mountaintop experiences, we think, well, now it's back to the real world. Now back down in the valley. And we live in the valley so much that we forget that we were made for the mountain. We live behind the bus so much that we forget that we were made for the mansion that's waiting just on the other side. Do you know that you were created for more? And I love C.S. Lewis. I'm going to quote him several times this morning, but I love this quote. He said, If I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a hunger, a longing, a yearning for something that nothing around me in this physical world, nothing that that I can get a hold of completely, nothing seems to satisfy this longing. If I find that in myself and nothing in this world can satisfy it, then it must mean the greatest probability is I was made for something more. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you were made for something more? That is what John is picturing for us in the scripture today. He begins by talking about what it's not. Let's see the newness in heaven's no mores. And we're going to fly through this this morning, so just hang on. We're going to go quick. See the newness in heaven's no mores. There's several things that he says will be no more. He first defines heaven by what heaven is not. That's a great way of defining something. Well, it's not this. Here's the things that it's not. First of all, there's no more sin. And folks, we could stop right there and we don't get it. If you're honest in this moment, you cannot imagine a world without sin. We just can't do it. You can't even imagine a day without sin. 
We can't even get through an hour of church without sin infesting this. But he says no more. In verse 1, when he says, I saw this new heavens and the new earth, and in the last end of that verse, there's this strange little phrase, and there was no more sea. And for those of you that like going on the cruise ships, you're going, oh, man, send us in the back going, what am I going to do? You know, no cruise ships in heaven? I guess they'll float on the clouds. I don't know how that's going to work. But, but the idea is not really no more sea, but in the Jewish understanding of the sea, that's where evil came from. That was the source of sin. In this book, we've seen the devil and his henchmen coming out of the sea several times because in the Jewish mindset, it was the sea was a place of darkness. The depths were the place where sin came from. And he's saying, that's going to be no more. And if you didn't get that part, you can go on down to verse 8 and verse 27, and he's more explicit saying, these are the things that are no longer going to be allowed no more sin secondly he says there's no more death again we cannot imagine life apart from death you can't do it try we're constantly reminded we drive by the funeral homes we experience death on a regular basis we as we even as we see the beginnings of death with our as our bodies begin to deteriorate yes at 34 i'm starting to experience that more and more i know some of you are laughing at me i see nancy back here is really laughing but the point is this we act as if death is simply a natural part of life in fact, that's what a lot of the teaching in our secular culture will just tell you. Well, death's just a natural part of life, but I want to tell you that is a lie from the pits of hell. Death is not a natural part of life. I want to show you what it is if you'll check out another video this morning. Of all the fears that grip our hearts, no fear is greater than the fear of death. There are those who will tell you that death is a natural part of life. But if death is just a part of life, then why does it cause us such anger and sorrow? When God created humanity, he intended for us to grow more and more beautiful over time. But in one tragic moment, we unleashed sin into the world, and everything broke, including our bodies. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and it fills God's heart with anger and sorrow even more than it does ours, because death was not a part of God's original plan. The Bible says that when Jesus approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he quaked with rage, and his eyes filled with tears. He was overwhelmed by the suffering caused by death, a curse we had brought upon ourselves. Death's curse was physical. Both the world and our bodies were decaying. But death's curse was also spiritual, eternally separating humanity from their creator, the source of all light, love, and life. But because of God's amazing love, he chose to surrender all power and glory to rescue us from death. Jesus, God's only son, was expelled from the presence of the Father and thrust into complete darkness in our place. 
He took humanity's curse upon himself, breaking death's grip on us and purchasing humanity a place at the Father's side forever. A day is coming when the true King will return at last to restore the world to its full glory and us with it, renewing both soul and body. You'll still be yourself, but even more so. You'll finally be the real you. On that day, we'll look at each other and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses of the real you, flashes of it, and now here you are. Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal one. You're not going to float through the clouds. You're going to walk. You're going to eat. You're going to laugh. You're going to hug. You're going to sing in realms and degrees of power and joy that you cannot now imagine. Some will tell you not to fear death because it's part of life. But Jesus says not to fear death because it's been defeated. And the day will come when Jesus embraces you with his nail-scarred hands and says, Welcome home. I have so much to show you. No more sin, no more death, no more suffering. Again, we, we just can't begin. Can't imagine what it would be like for there to be no more pain. For those of you that suffer with chronic illnesses, this is the hope of the gospel for you. And even for those of us that don't, to know that pain will be no more. And when God says, it is done, which he says in this passage, which is just a mirror image of what Jesus said at the cross when he said, it is finished. When God says, it is done, when God says it's done, guess what? It's done. When God says no more, it's no more. These are matters of faith that should cause hope to spring up in us. No more sin, no more death, no more suffering, and no more darkness. Again, for the Jews, this was, this was a, again, a symbol of all that was wrong with the world. All the evil came out of the darkness, out of the sea. And so when he says here in these closing verses of this chapter, he says there's going to be no sun or moon. Why? Not because it's going to be dark there, but because the glory of God gives it, gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. And it would be the picture of if we were to turn on all the lights in this building and then I were to come with a tiny little birthday candle and delight that thing and say, here, look, look at this light, you'd go, why? We don't need that light. That's this. The sun and the moon shining in their greatest brightness will be but a dim nothingness in comparison with the glory of God. we move to the last part of this message today I want you to see the newness not just in heaven's no mores but the newness in heaven's nobility the newness in heaven's nobility first of all this is a place fit for a king 
You read this description in verses 10 through 21, and we, we can't quite figure it out, first of all, because we're looking at I don't really know what a stadia is. I don't know what a cubit is. Let me give you some mental pictures for those of you that are visual. Now, again, understanding John is, I believe, using symbolic language here, but the symbol is only meant to represent something greater than itself, not lesser. You say, well, certainly this is an exaggeration. No, this is a symbol meant to illustrate something far greater than the symbol itself. And so when he says there, this city with walls that were 12,000 stadia, for those of you that, that like this kind of thing, a stadia is about 600 feet. Technically, it's 607 feet in one stadia. You do the math on that, and let me draw for you the dimensions of this city that John is describing. If McQuady, Kentucky, where we sit right now, was the center of this city that John is describing then its borders would reach from here north to the Canadian border. From here south to the Gulf of Mexico. From here east to Virginia Beach on the Atlantic. And from here west to somewhere a little ways past Wichita, Kansas. And if your thought was, wow, that's a big city, you're getting there. He's wanting to paint for us the immensity. For John, the understanding of that kind of a region, that was the whole known world in John's day. That was roughly the size of the Roman Empire. And the message to us is what we sang earlier in our very first song this morning. I asked the worship team to add that into the worship service today because I saw when we were practicing it. This is, this is what needs to be said today. When we sing, the whole earth is full of his glory. Guess what? It's not just a song. It's the promise of the gospel that one day there is coming a day when the whole earth will be filled with his glory. No more pockets of the world where people don't even know about Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. No more places where there's only 0.2% Christian. That's the world that we're living in today. There are large regions of the world, what we call unreached people groups, 7,000 plus unreached people groups in the world today who know nothing of the glory of God. But one day his glory will fill the earth. This is a place fit for a king, but not just any king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's also a place fit for a bride. We saw a wedding here. You may have missed it, but don't miss it. Place fit for a bride, verse 2 and verse 9, it speaks of this wedding. And I wish I had time to talk with you more about this. It's so powerful. If you go back and look at what a Jewish wedding ceremony looked like in John's day, it was so much deeper and broader than what we experience in our weddings today. Weddings lasted for weeks. The feasts were held. Deep ceremonies were, covenants were made. It, wasn't, it was much more than what we see today. It's a place fit for the bride, and the bride is the church. look at the church today and we are an imperfect mess that's a pretty good description of where we find ourselves it's not a hall of saints at this point we're a hospital for sinners every one of us are in desperate need of god's grace every day 
But there's coming a day when he is going, as we've talked about in this book, he is making us holy because he is holy. He's making us like himself. He is purifying for his son a bride, and this bride is the church. And we see her beautifully adorned in this scripture. Two more things. Rapid fire here. First of all, it's the place of grace. This is a place of grace. And some would look at it and go, well, but there won't be any grace needed in heaven, right? Sin will be dealt with, so there won't be any need for more grace. But I think there's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. The grace of God is God's gift to us. And you look there in verses 5 through 7. I just want to read this again. He who was seated on the throne, the Lord God Almighty himself said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to John, Write this down. In other words, don't miss this. Jot this down. Take note of this. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done what's done. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Those are words of grace. And they beg the question of us, are we thirsty? Do we want more than we have now? I'm not just saying bigger and better. I'm saying do we want the grace of God in this kind of measure? Do we want the glory of God? That's the last point. This is a place of glory. The glory of God on display and everyone bringing their glory to God as an offering of worship. That it's all centered around him. Like I said at the very beginning, if you don't want God, you don't want heaven. And there's only two eternal realities in which we will find ourselves, one or the other. There will only be a place of eternal suffering where your humanity is ripped away from you and you are forced into an eternity very much like an animal. What you were created for will be destroyed. You'll no longer have access to it. Or you're offered this. Complete fullness of God's glory on display for all of eternity. Hebrews chapter 11 it describes the kind of people that I think God would have us to be. So we're talking about the Old Testament saints, but it applies to us, I believe. Speaking of the Old Testament saints, it says, these all died in faith. And if you stopped right there, you'd go, well, what good was that? That's the way the world looks at the church. Yeah, you've got faith, but you're going to die, and that's going to be the end, and, and that'll be good. These all died in faith. Next phrase, not having received the things promised, If you die in faith, not having received the things promised, and it stops there, it's no good. But let's keep reading. But having seen them, I think that's the idea, having caught a glimpse of what God had in store and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? For he has prepared for them a city. So, folks, it comes down to this. 
sit there where you are this morning and you may be asking, well, okay, this is all fine and good, you know, nice talk about heaven, that's great. Okay, what do I do with it? I've wrestled with that question all week long. And I keep coming back to the same thing. Students, I want to talk to you for a minute. Those of you who've been at camp all week, I want to say a word to you just for a moment. There's this great temptation to go away to camp and to have this mountaintop experience. God shows up and things happen. People get saved. Lives get changed. And then you go back to the real world. In that place where God showed up this week, I've heard Neil talk about Tuesday night, and you all know what I'm, I'm talking about. In that place where God shows up, that's the real world. He pulls back that curtain just so slightly, lets his glory shine in. And the great temptation is to turn your back and to go back to the same old, same old. And you think, how do I not do that? And then, well, just wait. Just, maybe I'll just yearn for camp next year. I'm going to tell you, you can experience the glory of God every day, but it's got to come from right here. A deep desire and a passion for him that will not be quenched by the things of this world. You think, is that even possible? If that's not possible, then what are we doing? So I encourage you students, make this your constant prayer. That camp would no longer be the mountaintop, but it would be the foot of the mountain that God would lead you up. That you would only grow deeper and broader in your love for him. That what he began at camp would just be the foretaste of his glory in your life. And for everybody else in the room, I'm going to say this, and I mean every word. Church, we need to look, learn to look to our students to lead us. You want to know who led your pastor in worship this morning? These first four rows. And we need to learn to love our God so much that every other love pales in comparison to Him. That every other love, that you would be so enthralled with Jesus Christ that your deep love for your spouse would look like utter hatred in comparison. That you would so yearn for him that every other yearning, every other desire would look like utter distaste in comparison with him. If to desire heaven is to desire God, then would you pray this morning, God, would you put deep within me a desire for more of you? Even as a church that we would not pray, Lord, would you give us a bigger church? 
Would you give us better facilities? Even, even this prayer, God, would you help us to reach people? If we're not reaching them for the glory of the Lord God Almighty, if we're not reaching them out of that deep desire for more of Him, then what are we reaching them for? You want to see every seat filled in this place? You start to hunger for God and more and more of Him than you've ever known. And if you're not there right now, here's what I'm inviting you to today. You ask God to make you hungry. Are you hearing me? You ask God to make you thirsty. I am more convinced than I have ever been that he alone can change hearts. You ask God to put within you a desire that is unlike anything you've ever known. That ravenousness for his word where you can't wait to get up in the morning and fall on your face before him and thank him for another day and then dive into his word and see what he has for you. Or you can do comfortable cultural Christianity. Even in the church, you can stay behind the bus and miss out on the glory. Father, help us. Help us to see just a glimpse. Pull back the curtain just for a moment. Just that an ounce of your glory might shine through, and that will be more than enough. Put deep within us that hunger and that thirst, that unquenchable desire for more of you, knowing that your supply will never run out. Every other thing, God, that we hunger and thirst for, we find it eventually no longer satisfies. But in you there is true satisfaction because you are the intimate, ultimate, infinite God. And so our prayer this morning is more of you. More of you, Jesus, less of me. More of heaven, less of earth. More of your glory and less of the humdrum. Above all, more of you, Lord. God, would you put that deep, deep in our hearts? And now help us to respond, Lord. Help us to respond by desiring you.
And if we don't desire you, God, would you bring us to that place where we pray that we might desire you? And we keep praying that we would desire you more and more because you are the answer. You are the source. You are all that we need and everything else pales in comparison. And whatever it takes to get us to that place this morning, Lord, we pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.